Immigration reform at the top of the U.S. agenda today, Monday, January 28th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. A bipartisan plan for immigration reform is unveiled on Capitol Hill. It could lead to citizenship for millions of illegal immigrants. We'll hear about a great-grandmother from Mexico who benefited from the last big amnesty in 1986 and about fears among other immigrant groups that undocumented immigrants may get to cut in line for citizenship. Whereas they were law-abiding and they were waiting patiently for years. And later, how urban farming in a Nairobi slum benefits the kids there. They are strong because we, uh, we have everything here. Milk, egg, meat. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline health care workers who help them along the health care journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The legislative battle over immigration is now on. A bipartisan group of senators today rolled out their plan for immigration reform. It includes a pathway to citizenship for many of the estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. It would also beef up border security and other measures intended to deter future illegal immigration. President Obama is expected to unveil his own reform plan tomorrow. This is the biggest push for an immigration overhaul in years. But the political challenges ahead in Washington are many, judging by the outcome of past reform battles. Here's more from the world's Jason Margolis. Here's the worst-kept secret on fruit and vegetable farms in Arizona and California. The existing workforce is approximately 70 percent illegal or undocumented or falsely documented workers. That's Tom Nassif, president of Western Growers, an association that represents fruit, vegetable, and nut farmers in Arizona and California. That 70 percent figure comes from university and think tank studies, along with W-2 forms with falsified Social Security numbers. Farmers insist that they check documents before hiring, but it's well known that phony papers are rampant on American farms. And it's a risky game. Workers with fraudulent papers can get deported, The farmer can get fined, lose his workforce, and his harvest. Politicians across the board say the system needs fixing. A bill in Congress called Ag Jobs has enjoyed bipartisan support. It offered a legal path to citizenship for undocumented agricultural workers and would have made it easier for growers to hire temporary immigrant workers. But that bill died, mostly because politicians couldn't reach a bigger compromise on the entire immigration problem. Tom Nassif says American agriculture just can't go on like this. When the legislature wants to act on a sticky issue, such as immigration reform, they can do it very quickly. Consider baseball. When teams exceeded their visa allotment, Congress quickly made things right in 2006. We have an adequate supply of outstanding baseball players in the United States. And so if anyone's taking jobs Americans would love to have, it's foreign baseball players. Nassif makes this point for effect, not because he wants foreign baseball players out of the country. Meanwhile, plenty of other interest groups want their own issues addressed as well. So-called dreamers, young people brought to the U.S. by their parents illegally, want a path to citizenship. And then there are high-tech companies that want visas for foreign engineers and scientists. 
Democrats and Republicans actually agree on key points about tech workers and agricultural visas. But as political scientist Mark Jones at Rice University in Houston points out, politics over who gives up what or who gets what in a massive immigration debate can kill smaller bills. With the ag jobs bill, the Democrats blocked it. They don't want to give away what they know is the one immigration reform that most Republicans want without getting something in return. Of course, Republicans have stopped immigration bills the Democrats wanted too. Frustrating for many, but some say avoiding the piecemeal approach to immigration reform can make political sense. Edward Alden is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. It's a very tough tactical question, and it always has been. And the reason has to do with the most difficult issue of all, which is do you do some kind of legalization for the 10 to 11 uh, million unauthorized immigrants living in the United States? That's why many people on the bottom of America's food chain, undocumented immigrants, favor comprehensive reform during this presidential term. It's harder to do, but it's more harder if we keep another four years separate families thousands of families. Alain Cisneros is with the Texas Organizing Project, a community activist group. He says undocumented working immigrants feel trapped. They can't risk visiting family back home, and they're afraid to speak out against abusive employers. Cisneros remembers working as a janitor in Houston. Clean up. Clean up uh, every single night, four hours. Go and clean up the buildings. And when I see uh, many, many people uh, just come in and for any reason is fired. And the companies pay less, like in the black market. I see this is something wrong. He says with comprehensive immigration reform, everybody's rights will be on the table. Mark Jones at Rice University says what many others do. If comprehensive reform has a chance of passing, now is the time. In the end, I think a lot will depend on what type of priority President Obama and the Democratic Party give to comprehensive immigration reform. If he really does make this the health care reform of his second term, it's likely to be passed. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. It's been a quarter of a century since the nation's last major immigration overhaul took place. That was when President Reagan signed into law the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. The legislation made it illegal to hire an undocumented immigrant. It also granted amnesty to some three million illegal immigrants already in the country. One of those who benefited was Rosaura Piñera. She was the great-grandmother of Monica Ortiz Uribe, a reporter with the public radio collaboration Fronteras, and also a contributor to our program. Monica, you've written this lovely story about your great-grandmother, and listeners can check it out at theworld.org. And how she benefited from that 1986 amnesty. Tell us her story. Yeah, so my my great-grandmother was born in 1898 in the northern Mexican state of Chihuahua. We think she first came to the U.S. as a girl to flee the Mexican Revolution like so many others. And she came to El Paso where uh, she worked at a clothing factory. And we think she was able to get her U.S. residency then. But when she was around 30 years old, she got married. And her husband, she and her husband moved back to Mexico where they stayed until their old age. And by then their children had grown up. 
up and immigrated legally to the U.S., and, and she'd lost her U.S. residency by then. So when my great-grandfather died, she was left without any family in Mexico, and we decided to bring her back to El Paso. And she came with her border crossing card, with, which is only supposed to be for temporary visits, but it was basically the best option available for her to be able to stay and live in the U.S. So she was basically here illegally. So how did this 1986 law change her life? And really what stands out for you, Monica, from how, you know, this one piece of legislation kind of made a difference for your great-grandmother? Right. So so my great-grandmother became a U.S. resident at age 88, and this was after President Reagan passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act, or as Spanish speakers in my family call it, la amnestia, or, or the amnesty. So while my great-grandmother was living in the U.S., the hardest thing for her to get was health care. And so my grandfather would use to swap uh, plumbing jobs for doctor's visits for my grandmother. And when, when she fell and broke her hip, the whole family had to pull together money money to pay for her operation. One day she was out with my mom on a sunny day in El Paso and asked, you know, is it cloudy outside? I can't really see too well. And my mother realized she had gotten uh, cataracts. Uh, But knowing it was a sad realization because she knew the family couldn't quite afford to treat her. But after she became a resident, uh, she was able to qualify for Medicaid and she was able to go see the doctor, get her cataracts removed, and her quality of life just improved significantly. That's incredible. So the age of 88, she becomes an American. I I suppose for some that might have been anticlimactic at the age of 88, or it could have been really poignant. Yes. No, no, no. It it was very important for her. But even more important was for her to become a a citizen, which she didn't get to do until she was 100 years old. And uh, the reason she wanted to become a citizen, even so late in life, was that uh, voting was always very important to her. She voted in almost every election in Mexico. It was a big deal. She would get dressed up and take her grandchildren. And so she wanted to do the same in the United States. Um, at the 2000 election, she voted uh, in the presidential election. She was already kind of ailing in health. And it turns out that she never found out the, the result of that 2000 election because uh, she died uh, just three days after voting. Monica, you report on many people whose lives have been affected by immigration and immigration law. Do you often think of your great-grandmother's story? Well, I did now. Um, Just recently in uh, writing up news stories and actually considering the possibility that there might be immigration reform again this year, of course, it got me to thinking of her, of her story. And I sat down with my mom on a Friday night and I asked her to tell me the story because really for me, I was a young girl and a teenager. And so my great grandmother's story wasn't completely clear to me. Well, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Monica Ortiz Uribe, a reporter with the Public Radio Collaboration Front Terrace, their Changing America desk. Thanks so much for speaking with us. You're very welcome. One of the factors pushing immigration reform to the fore this year is the decisive Latino support President Obama got at the ballot box last November. But immigration is not just a Latino issue. Many other immigrant groups are affected. Asian Americans, for example, they also supported President Obama in large numbers. Andrew Lam is a Vietnamese American writer and editor at New America Media in San Francisco. I think for the most part, being that most Asian Americans are immigrants, um, two out of three are in fact naturalized citizens. There is a a natural sympathy toward um, the plight of immigrants, but there are also conflicted narratives uh, within communities like mine, the Vietnamese American community. People feel as if people who are undocumented are stepping in front of them in the line for citizenship, whereas they were 
law-abiding, and they were waiting patiently for years for that sort of thing. And so I think in some way, there's no clear uh, understanding yet of what the whole reform really means. So has that set up a tension within the Asian American community? Well, you know, I'm not sure if it's tension, but it's certainly a debate on whether or not giving undocumented immigrants a path to citizenship is the best thing, or should they have, you know, more of an obstacle course, given the fact that legal immigrants have a harder time. Andrew, how does the debate play out for you personally? I mean, where do you fall in in the whole discussion? (laughs) Well, you know, I was a Vietnamese refugee, and I came here in 1975. I kind of side with sympathy toward undocumented, because in some way, you know, refugees also fled Vietnam without exit visa. Uh, We enter other countries like the Philippines and Thailand without a permit. And so we cross illegal lines in order to improve or survive. And then um, it was only because by... uh, luck of the draw that we were given entry to the United States and remake our lives there. Why was there such strong support for Obama among Asian American voters, and how much did it have to do with hopes that substantive immigration reform would happen under Obama? I think uh, it's just not immigration issues alone. I think, you know, if I look at Obama in relation to being stronger now in, uh, you know, the Pacific Rim area, you know, and going to Burma. There's a lot of immigrants who having strong hope for great change in the homeland as well, because many of us fled from a kind of dictatorship. And so uh, I think we look at Obama now in a strange way as like a strong foreign policy person, uh, along with immigration reform. So you've been here for a couple of decades. Uh, More than three. (laughs) Yeah. So what is your own perspective on the ebb and flow of support for immigration reform? Because it's changed a lot from administration to administration since you arrived in the U.S. I mean, where do things stand today? I think America's relationship with immigrants is a kind of love-hate relationship. Um, You know, in the good time, we need you. We want you. Give us your huddled masses. And when the economy goes sour, the immigrant becomes the beating post, you know, the the boogeyman. I think that kind of pendulum had always been the tradition of American love-hate relationship with immigrants. Um, So in some way, I'm not uh, surprised that after Obama's uh, re-election and the, the stock market seems to go up, And suddenly um, there is a renewed interest that suddenly the Republicans are coming out with, you know, another set of plans and uh, that they acknowledge that immigration reform is a must. Whereas before the election, it it was some uh, a mute point. No one wants to talk about it. You know, it's in it's so quickly how that pendulum swings. Andrew Lam, a Vietnamese American writer and editor at New America Media in San Francisco. Thanks very much for your thoughts. No problems. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The legendary city of Timbuktu is now at the center of the conflict in Mali. Today, French and Malian government forces entered the ancient city. The Islamist rebels who had controlled Timbuktu have apparently fled. But before leaving, the rebels reportedly set fire to an ancient library in the city. There's no independent confirmation, though. Peter Tinti is a freelance reporter in Mali. He's currently in the center of the country and has been in touch with people in Gao, another city that's just been wrested from rebel control. People there were ecstatic. I could hear the drums playing in the background. People were out in the streets. 
people were using, you know, the type of rhetoric is finally we're free, finally I can breathe. So it seems like there was quite a party going on in that city as thousands of people cheered the arrival of French and Malian troops. Right. So people screaming, finally, we're free. Is there any evidence of a political offensive to bring the non-Islamist Tuaregs back into the fold of Mali? Well, at present, no. Um, It's not clear what role the MNLA, which is the separatist Tuareg group that more or less started this rebellion that was then later hijacked by the Islamist groups. Um, Political reconciliation is, is, is going to take time. Many people in southern Mali and many people in northern Mali also consider the MNLA to be a group not worth negotiating with and are quick to lump them in with the Islamist groups and blame them for more or less kicking this whole thing off. Peter, let's talk briefly about the uh, ancient library in Timbuktu. Um, You have spoken with the mayor of Timbuktu, who's in Bamako, I gather. What does he say? Well, the mayor told me, as he's told many outlets, that the library has been burnt down. This is a very important part of Timbuktu's culture and really a world treasure. That said, he is in Bamako, and we haven't been able to get any second confirmation on that. And while I think it's safe to say that we should all be concerned about the possible damage to these manuscripts, I think it might be a bit premature to just go ahead and assume that this library has been burnt down. It it is a pretty extraordinary font of of information and history there. We're talking about manuscripts from as far back as the 12th and 13th centuries that are texts of astronomy, science, philosophy. Um, Back when Timbuktu was really the center of world learning. Um, And, you know, we, we don't know if this particular library has actually been burnt, but we do know that parts of Timbuktu in the last however many months have been destroyed and some of this this rich history has been lost. So it's certainly not unthinkable that this might have happened, and it really would be a great tragedy. Peter, I've got to say, so far, this conflict in Mali has been a hard war to visualize. Has there been much fighting, or has it been mostly French planes bombing and Islamist rebels retreating? Um, You're absolutely right. Access has been very hard here. And, you know, reporters who are veterans of other conflicts have, you know, confirmed that this is actually the hardest it's ever been to get near any of the fronts. Um, From the towns I've been able to visit that were liberated, all the citizens are saying that the Islamists fled after the bombing. So it appears that most of this has been an, an aerial assault. French special forces have certainly been operating. French troops are on the ground. But by and large, this has been an air campaign that has caused a a retreat by the Islamists. Freelance reporter Peter Tinti in Sevare in central Mali, thank you for your time, and uh, please be safe. Thank you. Now, music may have been stopped by Islamist rebels in Mali, but the birds still sing. Here in the U.S., even if you live in a city, you may find yourself waking to the squawk of a chicken these days. There's something of an urban farming movement underway in America, people raising small livestock in their small yards. I've got neighbors here who want to raise chickens, take down the fences between the yards on our block, and even let them run free. Well, that kind of thing isn't just happening in the U.S. The world's Africa correspondent Anders Kelto recently traveled to Kenya's capital, Nairobi. Kahawa Soweto is a slum on the northeast edge of Nairobi. Children chase each other down a narrow dirt road, passing women with water jugs. It's a densely packed area, and it's not just people that live here. Regina Wangari opens the door to a small shack that she recently converted into a coop for chickens. We have 10 of them here. 
but outside we have almost 20 of them here in the ghetto. She lets the chickens roam freely around the slum, nibbling on bits of garbage and grass. And she also raises other animals. In a tight alley behind her shack, she keeps a dozen goats. And in a shanty nearby, she has rabbit cages stacked from floor to ceiling. We have 400 of them. You have 400 rabbits yeah, in this yeah, one yeah. little shack? Yeah, the place is packed. Raising livestock in the city isn't entirely new in sub-Saharan Africa, but it's a growing trend. It's on the increase, and in fact increasing faster than the rate of urbanization. That's Diana Lee Smith, a food policy expert with the Mazingira Institute, an urban farmer's education and advocacy group based in Nairobi. She says that, for years, many African governments staunchly opposed allowing farm animals in cities. That's because the animals can transmit diseases, they produce waste, they cause traffic accidents. But Diana Lee Smith says in the past few years, there's been a shift in the attitudes of some governments, including Kenya's. Local and central governments are beginning to adopt favorable and supportive policies. That shift is partly due to the benefits of urban farming. Delia Grace is a food security expert with the International Livestock Research Institute. Livestock products are pretty perishable and hard to move around. And in places, many developing countries, there's really little infrastructure. There's little refrigerators, there's few refrigerated trucks, anything like that. So then it makes enormous sense to keep the livestock close. Close to the cities, where the demand for animal products is high. Grace says the most important benefit of urban livestock in the developing world is childhood nutrition. Studies have shown that urban children whose families own animals are healthier than children whose families don't. That's because meat, eggs, and milk have protein and nutrients that are lacking in the diet that some Kenyan children subsist on, cornmeal and cabbage. Regina Wangari, the woman who raises chickens, rabbits, and goats, says her four children are healthy and strong. They are strong because we, uh, we have everything here. Milk, egg, meat, all those things we get free. Raising animals has also allowed Wangari to make a good income. She earns nearly $1,000 a month by selling eggs and chickens. That's an incredible amount of money for a family in this area. They've invested some of that money in an egg incubator and are now selling more than 700 baby chicks per month, mainly to neighbors who want to breed chickens. Another urban farmer who has enjoyed great success is Francis Wajira, he teaches classes on raising livestock at his home in downtown Nairobi. We always have about five to ten people almost daily visiting me to come for the training. Wajira charges about six dollars per person per session. That's a hefty sum for many. But it's also proof that they value the instruction. Wajira's small yard in a dense Nairobi neighborhood is overflowing with fruit trees, vegetables, and animal pens. Whatever small space you have, you can do something. You can keep a few rabbits, you can keep a few chicken, you can grow vegetables all over the world. But there's an irony to the success of urban farmers here. Regina Wangari, the woman who sells chickens, says her family has saved up enough money to buy a home in a more expensive part of Nairobi. But she hasn't found a nice neighborhood that will let her keep animals. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto, Nairobi. You can take a tour of Regina Wangari's urban farm. You'll find a video of her and her rabbits and chickens at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, an expedition to one of the coldest cities on Earth. 
and later a Hungarian band that gets its inspiration from California surfer culture. Because we see California from here as like perfect place. No one has problems. Only we have problems. <laughs> Those stories ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Brazil is in a state of shock over that deadly nightclub fire this weekend. At least 230 people were killed, most of them from smoke inhalation. The blaze allegedly started when a musician lit a flare on stage inside the Kiss nightclub in the southern city of Santa Maria. Brazilian police say they've detained three people and are seeking a fourth as part of their investigation. Daniel Molinari is a doctor in the neighboring city of Porto Alegre. He traveled to Santa Maria with a team of physicians and nurses to help out with the casualties. In the last 24 hours, he and his colleagues have treated over 80 people who were in that nightclub fire. He describes what the scene was like at the hospital in Santa Maria. A lot of patients in uh, respiratory distress. A lot of patients needing to be intubated to uh, assure that they wouldn't stop breathing. Really bad respiratory problems. Uh, the first 24 hours is respiratory disease. Now you're going to see some other disease like heart issues and uh, renal disease. But we saw most was respiratory Distress. Right, and that respiratory distress results presumably from the massive smoke inhalation that took place during this fire. Yeah, exactly. Now, I gather many of the victims were from the local university in Santa Maria. Has it been mostly young people you've been treating? Yeah, yeah young people, like from 16 to 22-year-olds. A lot of young people. All of them were young people. Have you ever seen anything like this before in Brazil, as no. long as you've been practicing? No, I don't think there ever has ever been something like this in Brazil. No, it was uh, it, it was a disaster. It was horrible. Young people. I don't think that it, that anyone that was working here has ever seen something like this. Did you have the chance to speak with any of these people who were trapped in this nightclub during the fire and then were able to? Yeah, they all were inside of the the nightclub. Some of them were out, got out in um, unconscious states. One of the patients told me that uh, he got out and he went back in to bring people out. They couldn't see because of the dark smoke. They couldn't see anything, one foot in front of them. There was a big mass of people by the door and they couldn't get out. So people from outside were just pulling them out. Some of them were pulled out alive and some were dead or unconscious. I know that a lot of people died inside the place, but also outside on the way to the hospital and also in the hospital. The first moments were, was, uh, was the worst. So you, you've spoken a lot about the respiratory distress uh, among the patients you've seen. What about burns? In the university hospital, there were three burn victims. They were really severe. They were transferred to, uh, to Porto Alegre. Yeah, some other hospitals from Porto Alegre, they went by airplane. Dr. Molinari, I imagine a small city like Santa Maria doesn't have everything it needs to address a, a crisis like this. You had actually had to come in from Porto Alegre to help out. What does the city need right now? What does Santa Maria need more than anything else? When I got here, I thought that it was going to be really wor a lot worse than it was. 
they transferred patients to bigger cities with uh, more resources. They were doing a great job. 230 people died in the fire. They were all taken to a gymnasium in the city. That was horrible, horrible. It was like a pile of bodies that were uh, little by little getting being recognized by their families and their the morning and the funeral. It was was horrible. Because the first place we went when we got to the city to unite to the local force was the gymnasium, was the, the center of the operation here in Santa Maria. So when you got to Santa Maria, that gymnasium with that pile of bodies, as you say, that was the first thing you saw? I didn't see the pile of bodies. We were outside. We didn't really want to go in. It was horrible. We had to go back to the patients of the living people. Mm. The people that were already dead, it was like the police and the fire department, they were all taking care of them. You know? So we had to go to the living ones, to the, to the hospitals that was going to receive the people that, uh, that wasn't dead yet. And a lot of them lived. Horrifying, horrifying scene. Yeah. Dr. Daniel Molinari, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. We're looking for the name of a cold Siberian city for our geo-quiz. This city is the capital of the Russian Republic of Saha. This place has, on average, the coldest winter temperatures for any city in the world. And it's a starting point of a venture appropriately nicknamed Expedition Extreme Cold. A small team that includes explorers, reindeer herders, and one filmmaker will trek several hundred miles across the Siberian forest where temps get down to minus 75 Fahrenheit. So what's the temperature outside today? Well, it's actually a heat wave passing through here, so I think it's no more than 38, 40 below zero. Mm-hmm. A sense of humor comes in handy when it gets that cold. We've also posted the list of equipment the team's packing for Expedition Extreme Cold at theworld.org. More about the track when we come back with the answer in about five. And speaking of extreme cold, climate-related warning lights are going off all over the planet these days. But one in particular has caught many climate watchers' attention. It's coming from Antarctica, which is essentially the world's biggest block of ice. Sam Eaton has our report. With its miles-deep ice sheets, Antarctica has long been seen as the frigid holdout on a rapidly warming planet. Well, there's a new analysis out of temperature records on the western edge of the continent, And it turns out, according to the study, that the region is actually one of the most rapidly warming places on the planet. West Antarctica is warming about twice as fast as what we had thought it was warming. Andrew Monahan with the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research was a co-author on the study, published last month in the journal Nature Geosciences. It's warmed by about uh, 2.3 or 2.4 degrees Celsius over the last 50 years. Or about 4.5 degrees Fahrenheit. That's three times the global average. Monaghan's co-author on the study, David Bromwich of Ohio State University, says the most alarming part of their findings is how much of that warming is occurring during the summer. That means that it's easier to get the temperatures above the freezing point, and the place that it matters is on the floating ice shelves. Bromwich says warmer ocean currents have already weakened those ice shelves, and if the warming there causes the ice shelves to break up, the massive glaciers behind them would have a much speedier path to the sea. That's a big concern because those glaciers hold enough ice to raise global sea levels 11 feet. 
Bromwich says there's a strong precedent for increased surface melting, causing an entire Antarctic ice system to collapse. And that took place, for example, on the Larsen B ice shelf in 2002 on the east side of the Antarctic Peninsula, and it disintegrated within a matter of days. After the collapse of that ice shelf, the glaciers behind it sped up by a factor of eight, putting much more water into the sea. It's extreme climatic events like this that are causing scientists to rethink future sea level projections. There's a significant difference now in the amount of ice that's being lost as compared to 20 years ago. That's University of Leeds climatologist Andrew Shepard. He was the lead author on another new study, the most exhaustive assessment of polar ice melt to date. It was recently published in the journal Science, and it found that the ice sheets aren't melting in a gradual, linear fashion, as many had predicted. The melting is actually speeding up. In the 1990s, the ice sheets of Antarctica and Greenland were probably contributing about 10% of global sea level rise. But now their contribution has accelerated, and they're now providing about 30% of global sea level rise. And that's something that people are certainly more concerned about now. And even more concerned about it as we move into the future. Yet another new study, this one a survey of the world's top 26 glaciologists, found that the scientists believe they may have seriously underestimated the potential for catastrophic sea level rise in the coming decades. The 2007 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report projected less than two feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. But the glaciologists surveyed believe there's a small but significant chance sea levels could reach three feet or more. That's a rise that would displace millions of people and jeopardize the future of cities from New York to Tokyo. Still, despite all of this progress in understanding how fast polar ice is melting and how parts of Antarctica are responding to warming, the fate of Antarctic ice remains one of the greatest climate uncertainties. The confirmation that warming is happening rapidly in West Antarctica is not the same thing as projecting that it will happen in the future. Eric Steig is a climate scientist at the University of Washington. He's credited with being the one to first detect the warming trend in West Antarctica. But he says the climate system that governs the area is so complex that figuring out what's going to happen in the future is still anyone's guess. What's happening in West Antarctica is changes in atmospheric circulation, which are actually influenced by changes happening in the tropics very far away. And projecting what happens in the tropics in the future is one of the well-known big uncertainties in climate projections. Throw in other influences like the hole in the ozone layer, and the challenge becomes even more complex. But Steig says while the current warming trend in West Antarctica doesn't make projections of future warming or sea level rise any more certain, it also doesn't give us any reason to worry less. It simply tells us that there's a lot of processes going on and the uncertainties are large. Leaving the world with yet another big climate policy question mark. How much uncertainty about the future of our ice caps and our coasts are we willing to live with? For The World, I'm Sam Eaton. There's no uncertainty about our super cold geoquiz today. In the coming weeks, Swedish explorer Michael Strandberg will be trekking hundreds of miles across an extremely cold region of Siberia. He wants to document the lives of the traditional reindeer people there. Strandberg was getting ready for the trek when I spoke with him. I'm actually sitting in a small apartment near the Lena River in a city called Yakutsk, which actually is the capital of this republic called Sakha. Okay, Yakutsk is the answer to our geo-quiz today. So what is your fascination with the Yakut people? You know, I spent a year traveling up a river called the Kolyma 
back in 2005, and I really fell in love with the people here in, in this part of Siberia. Because life has been so harsh and rough for over 500 years, so they have a lot of uh, warmth in every way. So uh, when I had the chance now to come back to do a documentary about this extraordinary way to travel by reindeer, I of course wanted to come here. They live out there in the forest in ways that they more or less have done for 5,000 years. And one of their, these ways are traveling with reindeer. They used dogs before, but then they domesticated the reindeer. And it's a fantastic way to travel. What do you expect to see along the way? Well, what we want to do is actually show the old ways of travel. So we are going from the coldest inhabited place on Earth, which is Oymyakon, which is not far away here. And from there, we'll travel south through an alpine area called the Kolyma Mountains down to the Sea of Okhotsk. And this has never been done before, and it's full of drama. Avalanches is a problem right now, but worst of all is that there are so many wolves. A pride of wolves at the moment is 400 wolves in one pride, and they are taking a lot of reindeer. So that will be one of the problems together with this extreme cold, of course. So what will you do if you encounter one of those wolves, 400 head of them? We will see. The major problem is throughout the night, of course, when we are kind of sleeping. But we have uh, 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 rifles with us, so we just have to protect ourselves. I don't feel any fear at all right now. What is the best equipment in this cold environment? I mean, we're talking really extreme. As you say, the, the coldest place on Earth. So what do you use? Not just Gore-Tex. Well, the thing is, last time I was here, I realized that every single item I had either broke or didn't work. And I had, what I want to do on this trip is kind of see what is the difference between modern polar equipment and the equipment that they've used for over 10,000 years here. What do they use there in, in Yakutsk? Just fur. Just fur. So uh, I've picked up, uh, you know, shoes from reindeer, trousers from reindeer, a jacket from reindeer, and a hat and gloves. That's all you need. And that keeps you warm. That, that keeps you warm. That you know, keeps you warm. You know, Michael, you said life is so harsh there. And I got to say, I was checking out, I have this crazy habit of checking out extreme temperatures around the world from time to time. And consistently, Yakutsk is like the coldest place on earth every day. Why don't people just leave? That's a, uh, well, you, you see, Yakutsk is kind of a modern city. You, you have pretty much everything that you can expect from a modern society here. And these people who live here, I would consider them city people. You have, if you take the women, for example, some of which are the most beautiful on earth, they walk around in extraordinary high heels here, and they look as fashionable as anywhere on earth. However, once you leave Yakutsk, go out into the bush, it's an entirely different thing. And the interesting thing is here, you know, most of these people who live outside the city, they don't want to go into Yakutsk. They don't even like it. It smells bad, the reindeer people think. <laughs> and they prefer the life out in the taiga. And, you know, when you've lived like me for 25 years trying to figure out the meaning of life, the last final free human beings that I consider is out there. They are to be found here. And, you know, I really want to figure out how they think 
how they see life and why they don't leave. I can tell you many do want to leave, but I'm probably one of you who would actually like to be deported the other way. (laughs) Michael Strandberg is exploring Yakutsk and the region around Siberia. Best of luck to you on this expedition. Thanks a lot. See what it's like to travel by reindeer. We have photos and the names of today's geotext game winners at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. This past weekend, Myanmar, also known as Burma, hosted an international marathon. Consider it a warm-up of sorts. That's because next December, Burma is due to host the Southeast Asian Games. The Games take place every two years, and the host nation is always given some latitude when it comes to the events. But Burma is under fire for taking a lot of latitude, localizing the sporting lineup a bit too much. For instance, Burmese officials want to include a sport called Chinlon. To find out more about Chinlone, I'm joined by filmmaker Greg Hamilton. He's done a documentary on Chinlone called Mystic Ball. And Greg, if Mystic Ball is one way to refer to Chinlone, I'm gearing up for a great tale here. Describe the sport for us. What is Chinlone all about? Well, Chinlone is a, uh, an, it's an artistic sport that uh, originated in Myanmar. It's played by a single team of six players. There's only one team. There's no opposing team. And we use the feet and the knees to uh, pass a woven rattan ball around inside of a circle. In essence, Chinlone is non-competitive, but there's also a more modern version of the game that is competitive. Describe kind of what happens in, in the circle with uh, Chinlone. I mean, how, how team-like is it? So what happens is we play inside of a 22-foot diameter circle. The six players form themselves around the outside of the circle, and we walk in a counterclockwise direction. We start to pass the ball around. And then one of the players goes into the center of the circle and becomes the soloist. And then they're supported by the other five players. And there's a couple of hundred distinct moves that one can draw from. So in a way, it's kind of like jazz in that sense. Yeah, I was going to say, there is a musical metaphor here. How did you find out about this sport? I just happened to come across a Burmese man playing in a small park in Toronto, here where I live. And I was instantly fascinated with it. And then I started going over and um, learning how to play in Myanmar. And and so how are they going to turn this into a a competitive sport? First off, just let me say, Chinlone is thought to be approximately 1,500 years old or older. And sometime during the 50s, they made it into a competitive sport. I guess we could compare it to figure skating or something like that, where (laughs) it's a little hard to explain, but it's the same basic uh, structure of the game. It's one team at a time, and there's ways that they can judge points based on, for one thing, how often they drop the ball to the floor. For another thing, players have to do these various moves in sequence, which makes it extremely difficult. Must take a lot of control. It takes a lot of control, and it especially takes a lot of focus, and it's considered to be meditative in that respect. Have you seen Chin Lone played competitively anywhere outside of Burma? No, 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 never. <laughs> inside Burma, yes. And even uh, inside Burma, the competitive version is not as popular as the non-competitive version. Uh, one of the things that I love about Chinlone, it's the kind of game you can play throughout your whole life. Do you, do you see a lot of old and young playing together? Or is it uh, really that the oldsters have their games and the youngsters have their games? No, not at all. In, in fact, one time at one of the Chinlone festivals, I saw a team that had a 72-year-old man 
and a nine-year-old boy playing together, same team, and they had a, a really a great game. And mixed genders, men and women play together on the same team, but not in competitions. In the competitions, the men play and the women play separately. Greg Hamilton, Chin Loan expert and director of the documentary Mystic Ball. He joined us on the line from Toronto. You can see trailers and clips from Mystic Ball at theworld.org. Greg, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Hungary isn't the most obvious place to catch a wave. The country is landlocked, after all, so it's not exactly the Southern California of Central Europe. But that hasn't stopped the summer Shotsis. The trio claims to be Hungary's first surf pop band. Nate Tabak has the story. Hungarians aren't known for their optimism. They're sometimes called Europe's least happy people. Exhibit A is Hungarian music. Angels have no thought of ever returning you. The Hungarian song Sumoru Vasarnap was famously covered by Billie Holiday in the 1940s as Gloomy Sunday, and it was banned from BBC Airwaves for years for being too morose. Jofie Nemet says there's a lot of things to get you down in Hungary. If you are really thinking radical, you can say that Hungary is cheap, people are idiots, uh, you have no future. Nemet is the lead singer of the Summer Shotsis and writes most of the lyrics. The band has a prescription for Hungarian malaise. We see California from here as like perfect place. No one has problems. Only we have problems. <laughs> Naturally, Nemet drew inspiration from a band in Los Angeles. It's a contemporary surf pop group called Best Coast, and it's also fronted by a woman. She inspires me to let go. Okay, I could be cheesy too. Never mind. I could speak my mind. Those things that I shouldn't say maybe. Okay, I'm a grown-up girl, but I still have this teenager stuff going on in my soul. <laughs> the Summer Shotsis also includes bass player Adam Lang and drummer Zoltan Horvat. And they all have other bands that play more moody music. So their surf songs are like an escape. It's like uh, going on a spiritual holiday. <laughs> yeah, really. Whatever tired and, and frustrated I go into the rehearsal room with the guys, I, I always come out... Mm -hmm cheerful and all my all my sadness is gone. Romance plays an important role in their songs, but again there's the Hungarian twist. It's romance of the tortured variety. Nemet says most of the songs are about her on-again, off-again boyfriend. We get apart and get together because we cannot really get out of this circle. We always need each other. Like we are <laughs> hopeless. <laughs> That may explain why the band's songs seem both fun and dark at the same time. Hula Hoop is a deceptively fun track. It's about wanting a hula hoop after all. The lyrics talk about never having been to the beach. The Hungary does have some river and lake beaches.
The summer Shotzi's so far have put out three EPs without the benefit of a real beach. They're planning to release their first album later this year. As for Nemet and her boyfriend, by last check, they were still together. <laughs> Let's hope we will stay together until we die. <laughs> for The World, I'm Nate Tabak, Budapest. And they're not exactly beach scenes, but you can catch some cool shots from the rooftops in Budapest in the band's video there at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.